Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Beginning Teacher Wednesdays. I am your host, Jen Hawkins, and I am so excited for you to finally get to hear this episode. Anyone who knows me or talks to me on a regular basis has known that I've been sitting on this interview for about a month, and I have been so excited to share it with you guys. And today's finally the day. I had the opportunity to sit down with Dr. Rashad Anderson and really dive into how we can support our black students and support our black beginning teachers. This conversation is so necessary for us to be having because I believe that we need to really start digging deep and talking about how implicit biases are impacting the educational experiences for black students as well as the teaching experience for black educators. Dr. Rashad Anderson serves as an assistant professor of teacher education, campus director of the Call Me Mister program, and holds a teaching appointment in the Honors College at SC State University. Central to his work is engaging students, scholars, practitioners, and community members to find and implement effective means to better propel black male youth through K-12 and higher education settings. As a former public school music educator for several years, Dr. Anderson also brings to his research a deep experiential understanding and passion for the arts. He received his BS in music education from SC State University and a master's in music education from the University of South Carolina. Dr. Anderson received his PhD in educational foundations and inquiry at the University of South Carolina, where his research interest focuses on the exploration of social justice and equity issues in education, including racial, gender, religious, sexual, and class oppression. In 2019, Anderson published his first book, What's up with all the black boys sitting in the principal's office? As a frequent lecturer, he has presented at over 50 state and national education conferences, including an invitation as the keynote speaker from the United States Department of Education in 2019 in Washington, D.C. From his work, Dr. Anderson has received accolades such as the 2019 Call Me Mr. Trailblazer Award, the 2019 SC Fatherhood and Black Male Achievement Man of the Year Award, and the 2017 Department of Ed Professor of the Year Award. Rashad and I met last fall at a conference, and once we found out that we were both Gamecocks, well, the rest was kind of history. I have been so impressed with everything that he does and the work that he is doing in his community and around the world. So I knew that when I wanted to talk about how we could support black educators, he was going to be the perfect guest to have on. I hope that you learn as much from him as I did and that you walk away with different ideas on how you can support all of your students, as well as how you can support the black educators who are around you. So guys, you know what time it is. Find somewhere comfy to sit, grab your beverage of choice, and make sure you have your notebook ready because we're going to sit down for the next 30 minutes with Dr. Rashad Anderson. Beginning Teacher Wednesdays is brought to you by Papa Murphy's Take and Bake Pizza. Guys, if you're anything like me, you don't know what day, week, month, or even year it is right now, and you definitely don't know what you're having for dinner tonight. This time of year is crazy for all teachers, and Papa Murphy's is looking to make it a little bit easier. Papa Murphy's Pizza makes their dough fresh every day and uses 100% real mozzarella cheese. That's cheese grated from a block, not poured from a bag. They make their dough from scratch, and it's not pulled from a freezer. And they also use ingredients that are purchased from local vendors. 
you can go right on their website, papamurphys.com, place your order, and then as you're driving home from work, grab it, throw it in the oven, dinner's on the table nice and easy. Right now, to make it even easier, Papa Murphy's is giving you 25% off your order of $20 or more. Just use the code HOME25 when you're checking out. That's HOME25, H-O-M-E-25, to receive 25% off your order of $20 or more. All right, well, I'm here with my friend, Dr. Rashad Anderson. Rashad, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for having me. I can't complain. <laughs> Do you want to kind of start us off and just tell us how you got into education, a little bit about your journey and what you do now? Absolutely. Um, I became a teacher after joining a program in high school called Teacher Cadet. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't know much about teaching. I never had a black male teacher uh, in K-12. Um, I knew kind of what I wanted to do after high school was work at one of the local uh, meals that I think it produces like tires and other type of papers and all types of things. That's what people in my community and in my family did to me that that was a really important, high aspirational job from, you know, my community. Uh, But I got connected with this program called teacher cadet and they paired me with a teacher at a local school uh, mr eric lewis and he was a black male teacher and i just never thought about a black male being a teacher i never saw myself in that role it just was something that never came across my mind Mm. and i can just remember um doing my observation days of just how he was so powerful in the classroom the kids were um, hypnotized to him um, and he was different I mean this is a teacher that looked like me had a tattoo um, <laughs> was cool played rap music but the students were super engaged and he was passionate about teaching and that really piqued my interest about being a teacher and I completed the teacher cadet program and I went to SC State to major in music education uh, I was a big band geek and choir geek and I, I I said man if you can get paid by um teaching music all day is that not the best job in the world <laughs> yeah so that's how I got started initially in the education field and so moved up a little bit since then but that's my how my initial start and then explain to everyone because I I'll be honest, I've been so excited to talk to you tonight that I've told just about everyone I've run into today about the amazing things that you do now. So can you shine a little light on the work that you are currently doing? Okay, so when I was 26, I finished my PhD at USC Columbia in uh, Foundations of Education and Inquiry uh, with special emphasis in racial and equity issues in education. And I knew the president at SC State University at the time, he was actually my neighbor. And he asked me pretty much one day, am I interested in in ever teaching at the collegiate level? They had some openings. And so uh, I moved from the elementary Mm -hmm. to college. And I started working with the teacher education department as an assistant professor. So now in my role, 
I have a lot of hats. Um, <laughs> so I, I teach undergrad all the way to a doctorate degree. And a special part of my role is I also serve as the director of the Call Me Mr. program. Um, the Call Me Mr. program is a SE uh, program that started in the year 2000. And the purpose of it is to produce and educate and place more African-American males to be in elementary schools. And so this is a really critical thing. If we think about in the year 2000, only 2% of all teachers in the state of South Carolina um, were black. Wow. Um, and out of that 2%, 0.2% were black males. Um, so there was such a need mm -hmm. uh, for representation of black men in education because uh, black males were overrepresented in special ed, um, overrepresented in the demographic that was missing benchmarks on state tests, overrepresented in disciplinary sanctions. And it is so critical. I'm one of the people that believe you do not have to be um, of somebody's race to be an effective teacher to them. But I do believe that in our organizations and in our structures that we need diverse people at the table. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's what Call Me Mister is about. It, it's not saying that we're putting black men into the classroom because only black men can teach black boys. It is about making equitable representation and thoughts and, and teaching pedagogies. And we're, we're infiltrating that into school systems and classrooms so that there is this diversity of thought, diversity of teaching, um, that there when big decisions and policies are being made, that we are having diverse people at the table. And, and so that's, that's kind of that mantra of Karma Mister is, uh, putting uh, more diverse people, especially uh, black men at the table, per se, in terms of classroom experiences. So that's what I do now. And I'm a speaker, so I go across the country pre-coronavirus. I was going across <laughs> the country almost every other week traveling um, to speak. Uh, and so that's kind of what my role is pre-corona was. I think it is so important that we have people that represent and look like our students um, at the table. And it's a conversation we have often. Um, does our staff represent the diversity in our schools? You know, your staff needs to um, represent all the different viewpoints and it doesn't have to be exactly the same, but it's gotta be people who can offer different views and different stances and different backgrounds and understandings that our students may also relate to. So I think that the work you are doing is so necessary and crucial. You know, we've, since 2000, Call Me Mister has placed close near 500 fully certified black males into the classroom. Now, wow. uh, some who are um, at the district level, we have those that are working as administrators, principals, still those that are in the classroom and so yeah we're putting we're definitely putting representation out there that's phenomenal so talk a little bit about 
who you were as a beginning teacher. What were some of the hardest lessons you had to learn? And what were some of the biggest victories that you had in those early years as an educator? Mm. As a beginning teacher, I was Superman. I can't, <laughs> I was a Superman complex. Like I, I literally walked into the school building and that first week before students came, I had this idea that I was going to be, I mean, Superman for all the kids. The parents were going to absolutely love me. Um, I'm going to have great relationships with all students. I'm not going to have any misbehavior. Um, and that my colleagues are all going to work together. I was going to have a great relationship with my principal. Like I really had this fantasy idea of what I was going to do in education. And it was quickly shattered, <laughs> uh, I would say, after week one. Um, mm -hmm. I had some very tough um, experiences of being one of the first black male teachers in a predominantly white school district. That first week, I mean, I had some wild experiences. It was called the N-word <laughs> the first week. Uh, kids who were beyond difficult. It was not a rosy, cheesy type classroom experience that first week. And so you either have to make a decision, either you're going to make the best of it and you are going to continue to try to be a change agent in a chaotic environment that's less than ideal, or you're just going to sit there and you're going to suffer and you're going to be one of the miserable teachers that stay in the classroom and complain about everything. And so my mindset changed pretty quickly is it became, I have to adapt to this environment. Um, and not only do I have to adapt, but I have to excel in this environment and still be this revolutionary educator and be a change agent, despite all of the things that are going on that are less than ideal. I didn't have the best relationship with my principal. Um, I dealt with racism um, from an early onset from parents that were less than supportive for that just really simply did not want their child being in a black male's classroom. I got questioned on my credentials. Um, I had actually parents calling the State Department to see if I really actually had a teaching certificate. That's I mean, disgusting. so it was, it, I mean, it was, it was crazy. Um, so that was a big challenge. but. I want to say my big win happened really within the first month. I saw this need uh, for uh, black male students. There were, I, I talk about it in my first book, um, how I would just see black males constantly kicked out of the classroom. We talked about, you know, black males and, and the wo educational woes of them so many times in our PD sessions. and. I decided to do something about it. And I started, I asked the principal to start a mentoring program. And that mentoring program blossomed into something much bigger than what I even could have imagined. Um, it really was the eye opener for me. It, it reformed me as an educator. Um, and not only that, but it thrusted my career in a whole new area. And so, um, that was a big win for me. And I, I realized, too, that if you 
sign your work with excellence and you have high standards of your, your students and, and you teach with passion, you may not get all of the accolades that you think that you deserve. Mm. But I have this mindset that I'm going to be teacher of the year, whether I get the recognition or not. And that is really my mindset that I try to breed into my students now. When I walk into a school building, I am going to be so revolutionary, so passionate. I will be teacher of the year or professor of the year every single place that I go whether I get recognition or not, because mm. there is no one that is going to help teach me, that's going to have more energy than me. I am going to go the extra mile to make sure that I am excelling in the classroom and making sure that the level of engagement from my students is there. And that's the type of passion and dedication that I bring. And so that was a big win for me, not seeing the system as flawed and permanent, mm -hmm. but seeing the system as flawed, but I can do something about it to fix it. Mm -hmm. I'm going to borrow that phrase to sign your work with excellence from here on out. Cause I think, <laughs> I think that's so true, right? You should, anything that you do, any work that you complete, you should feel confident signing it with excellence before you, you know, turn in at the end of the night. That's yeah, an awesome way to put it. So you wrote a book, What's Up With All the Black Boys in the Principal's Office, and I think that the perspective of that book is really fascinating and interesting. So can you speak a little bit about, you know, where that book came from, what's it about, and really the perspective of how it's written and, and the stories it tells? Absolutely. So the book, it happened when I was in the middle of graduate school, working on my doctorate degree, I had just started teaching, was working with the mentoring program. And I had these, I had 30 black boys in my mentoring program and they represented the demographic in the school that was considered to be at risk, either because of behavior or academics. And so I was looking for a way to change um and and help and i was looking and finding books and resources and my professors would recommend books for me and i noticed that out of all of the books the main boys who were speaking about recommendations for change were education researchers professors mm -hmm. who had been out of the classroom 30 plus years um, people, uh, administrators and, and other teachers, everybody had their say. And then the books were so esoteric. They had these broad philosophical concepts. Um, the way that we teach children is you got to have, you know, culturally relevant pedagogy. You got to have, you can't be colorblind. I mean, all of that stuff is good, but right. pragmatically, how do we um, break this down for a teacher in a day-to-day -day basis, something that's less esoteric and more pragmatic. And so in, in talking to my guys in the Brothers Keeper program, we had something called the Brotherhood Circle where we would debrief every single day. And I realized very early on how sagacious young students are, mm. that they had a perspective about school in a way that I had never heard. And then it dawned on me, why are uh, research not coming directly from the lips of students themselves? Mm -hmm. Because out of anybody, they can tell you and they can <laughs> articulate 
what is going on in school systems better than anybody else. They know. They always know. And, right. and beginning teachers learn that day one. Your kids know. They they know. They see right through you every minute of every second of every day. Absolutely. And I mean, and they know. They know the power structure. I mean, they they have <laughs> it all together. And so, what's up with all the black boys in the prince's office is a book that is directly from the perspectives of the students themselves. The narratives, the stories you hear directly from um, the students. So my part was to organize their stories and to categorize their stories according to major themes um, that I saw. And so the book has major themes that they articulated themselves about what was problematic about school and teaching behaviors and what how they felt they got on that road of being labeled as the at-risk kid and uh and so that's what makes the book really unique because when you pick up the book you're you're hearing directly the words transcribed directly from their mouths so i'm gonna ask a an odd question here um but i think as human beings, right, the practice of reflecting on experiences or situations is in a way very therapeutic and, and eye-opening. I think that sometimes when we take a step back and are able to articulate our reflections, that it gives us a different perspective and we can maybe see the whole picture a little bit more than when we went through it the first time. So I'm curious, those individuals that were able to articulate and express their experiences through that book, has their journey changed? Are they still considered to be that at-risk group? Have they um, been able to take that experience of reflecting and, and see themselves in a different way or the situation in a different way? So I've kept up with most of, of the boys that were a part of that study. Uh, one of them is doing extremely well. I, I actually have a picture of him. He finished middle school as the salutatorian of his class right now in high school. I mean, we're talking about a kid that went from um, having pretty much D's, C's, and F's in school now is a, a straight A student. I mean, <laughs> it, it was crazy because the way he was being framed in school in his classroom in elementary was that he spoils everything because he always blurts out all the answers mm -hmm. and he he gets into you know trouble because he he does his work so fast and he just gets in trouble and to me hearing his stories like why any other child that didn't look like you they would have said you're gifted but because you look the way that you look and you yep. had the teachers that you had gifted never came to mind just you were bad so he now is in the gifted program doing extremely well the other guys um i can't say that they had very large transformations they're not they didn't go from you know uh d's and f's to a straight a student but we're talking about kids that went from having 30 plus referrals now down to zero to five right. uh, referrals a year so i mean it's not perfect but it is a significant uh, growth. Uh, so I do believe that that reflective part and um, engaging their parents and, and 
their parents, you know, uh, read the book. It gave them a different perspective. So the parents started questioning things, mm. being more active in the school. So it was, it, it turned out good for all of the boys that I could keep up with. It was very beneficial to them. Based off of, you know, that book and the work that you do through your mentorship program, what do you think is necessary for teachers to know about creating an environment where Black students can not just survive but thrive in in school settings? I think because of a lot of different factors, sometimes it's unconscious racism and and biases the way that students behavior things that they say and do are perceived a different way makes a classroom not as conducive for learning for for some students so i i talk about um one of the students in in the book who favorite teacher was actually a white female teacher mm-hmm. and if you put the dichotomy between the teacher that he said that he absolutely hated versus the teacher that he loved, both were white females, but the one that he said he loved, he said, she gives me second chances. She sees Mm. the good in me. She um, allows me to sit and do my work underneath my desk. She (laughs) makes me the, the helper. She came to my church to hear me, you know, sing or came Mm -hmm. to a basketball game versus the other classroom where it was remarks like, if you have on a pair of Jordans, you shouldn't uh, be asking me for a pencil if your Mm. parents can afford Jordans. And so you have these microaggressions Mm -hmm. that the kids have. And I don't think educators realize, you know, those really have a big impact on kids. Oh yeah. They start to, I mean, really just hate the teacher and, have this uh, attitude like, man, I can't stand being in this room. And the two, once you have that situation to where, you know, a teacher dislikes the the student and the student dislikes the teacher, I mean, that is just a formula for a bad year. If anything, I can say, I don't want to prescribe and say that there is a specific type of learning style or a specific type of things that an educator has to do to be conducive for black students because black students are not monolithic. I think that what an educator, the best thing that they can do is understand the places um, and the language and the interest that students bring to the classroom and be able to see the positive in every single student and not just look at oh, well, you know who his mom is. You know what neighborhood he comes from. Or I had his brother before. This is just going to be a nightmare. See the positive in every student and know that you play a part um, in changing that student's narrative. I think that that is the most critical thing that any educator can do, regardless of ethnicity and gender. Um, There's a saying about you know students don't really care how much you know they care how much you care about them yep that is the cardinal rule relationships if you can build a relationship with a student that that looks nothing like you and still push them for excellence i think that that is your 
secret sauce um, <laughs> in order to be successful. Yeah, and I think with microaggressions, those small comments or those little you know, thoughts, those are some of the heaviest things that we put on students. And it is those constant microaggressions or constant, you know, digs at a child or passes of judgment that we make on a daily basis that they they don't forget. They hold on to them and they see through them and they can make or break a kid's educational experience, in my opinion. And they can, and, and we have to be careful of what we speak uh, upon students. Uh, it's so much power in the tongue, I believe. So we have to be careful about those, those microaggressions. But I do get it. Teaching is like holding 50 corks underwater at the same time. It's mm -hmm. difficult. Um, sometimes we have bad days. But if we really want to be effective practitioners and humanistic uh, practitioners, this is the task that we have to do. Mm. 50 corks. <laughs> <laughs> so you talk a little bit about how important it was for you to see a black male educator, mm -hmm. but you were not really um, given that opportunity until much later, correct? Correct. So what do you think is the significance of students being exposed to black educators at an early age? Mm. I think it provides them with two things. If I see someone that looks like me mm -hmm. in a profession that goes to my church, that talks like me, interested in the same things. One of the first things that it does is, is recruitment for the profession itself. By having a black male teacher in the early grades, it is the biggest recruitment tool for recruiting future black males into the profession once they get ready to go to college. Yeah. Um, because representation matters is 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 so important the second thing that it does is it provides this experience for students who go into classrooms and feel like i have nothing in common with my teacher this place is like a foreign environment um and if you can imagine like a third grader and you're learning multiplication, but mm -hmm. your teacher is, you know, somebody that goes to your church mm -hmm. and you are learning a multiplication rap. And this is the very first time it just blows your mind that the music that you listen to when you're at home, the teachers now has a rap instrumental and you're doing multiplication. So now learning is fun. Like there, there's an educator that like capitalizes on just building on students' interests, like Ron Clark, mm -hmm. the Ron Clark Academy in Georgia. Like, yeah, not a black male, but he uses this culturally relevant pedagogy with students that makes them so engaged with learning. And so when you have somebody that is willing to, to make learning fun, engaging, and then um, if you afforded the opportunity to have, you know, a fellow black male, um, you know, looks like you, 
um, it changes really your whole feelings about education. I mean, planting that seed, that seed of striving for excellence in third grade is such an important mantra to have developed at a young age and go through school with that mindset rather than me my first black male teacher was in college freshman year mm-hmm. and there was another level of care and rigor mm-hmm. that i never had before until i i had my first black male teacher and Unfortunately, he passed um, a week ago due to coronavirus, but how he took me underneath his wing and I was really like a son to him and Mm -hmm. he pushed me. He was the one of the ones who told me, you know, you're going to be a PhD uh, (laughs) one day. Nobody ever said that to me. I mean, it was another level um, of experience that I wish I would have had early in school because it it would have pushed me even further. Mm-hmm. I think now I, I see my fellow colleagues and call me Mr. Now, they take, you know, they have mentoring programs and they're taking their boys, you know, to college campuses and exposing them um, to, you know, some great, bright academic black males um, in, in variety in the third, fourth, and fifth grade. Imagine what those seeds planted and to these students mm-hmm. at this early of age is going to do uh, for them. When I was growing up, the epitome of a good job was working at the mill or the tire shop. That was a great job. Yeah. Now I see these same students saying, I want to be a meteorologist. What? <laughs> like, that's just not something that you, you hear. Um, or, you know, I want to be an athletic director. Or I want to develop video games. Or I want to be a doctor. Like these are the things now that open up because they they are being taken to places and exposed to people. Um, there was a black doctor that was, I mean, licensed, had his own medical practice in the area. I remember bringing to to my students and just talking, and this was like the very first time, you know, one of the, my guy's parents was saying that my son said he wanted to be a doctor when he grows up. Like, <laughs> That's powerful. Yeah. I think uh, one of the big things that as an educational system as a whole, we are struggling with is not only the recruitment of Black educators, but the retaining of Black educators. And so we have a lot of administrators and mentors and coaches who also tune into this podcast, not just beginning teachers. So with the opportunity to maybe speak to some of those individuals, what do we need to have in place as an educational system to help not just recruit, but retain these black educators? Man, I, I did a uh, hour and 30 minute <laughs> seminar on this uh, last semester. I took a group of black male educators, one that left the profession after a year, another one that was teacher of the year uh, after his first year. And I just wanted to kind of get that mixture of their wisdom of why they left the profession. And so this is something 
I can just give you like a, a quick rundown, but I can, I can go on and on about this. Uh, is this, I think one of the first things is schools are a microcosm of society. Mm. And ultimately the same type of unconscious racial things that you see happening to our black boys in a school system sometimes that same reiteration happens professionally to black males when they're the only person in this this space this white space yep and it's lonely and you have no support and you you feel like man you're treated differently but you don't really have an outlet or uh, very few people who you can talk to about and that is it's frustrating and there's a uh this necessity uh, that a lot of administrators place on black male educators to what to be the black boy whisperer. Yep. The black boy whisperer, like every single problem with black kids in the building. Okay, let's talk to you because you're the guru. You have to fix it, and it's it's frustrating. And uh, my colleague who left the profession was just saying he felt like the profession to be an elementary school teacher was so feminized and was Mm. so embedded in just like how white female teachers taught and how they did things that him coming into a school building that had dress down days and just he wore Jordans on a dress down day and was given an email reprimand to say that he couldn't wear Jordans on their dress down day because the Jordans promoted gang-like culture. But other teachers wear tennis shoes, Nike, anything, but he specifically gets called out because he has Jordans on. And I mean, come on, (laughs) like Jordans now is, is gang culture. And so you're telling a grown man, no, you can't wear that because you look like you're in a gang. You know, if that's the thought you're holding and you're willing to say to a colleague, what are you thinking about our kids that are walking in with sneakers? They're sneakers. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so that's why I say schools are a microcosm of society. And you will see those same type of biases Mm. happen and replicate it at a professional level. Um, And my colleague was just saying, you know, it just was a place that he felt like he could never fit in. Like he, he loved kids. He was passionate about kids, but um, he, there were teachers, his co a cooperating teacher said that his classroom was decorated. It wasn't kid friendly. And he said they, they suggested it to have more colors and flowers and like ladybugs and it's like no i want to put sports up i want a masculine look and he said like almost everything that he did was scrutinized and it just felt like it wasn't him and that's ultimately why he chose to to leave the profession you know he said in the morning you know other teachers would have you know classical music you know playing as the kids coming by he would have a hip-hop instrumental beat no no words anything just the hip-hop feed and got a email reprimand for that uh so it's like he's like it was just a terrible experience for him just bringing 
himself into the classroom. And what makes it so shocking was that the student demographic was mostly black, but the faculty was mostly white. So mm-hmm. if you have problems with all of these parts of black culture with a professional, what do you really think about the students that you teach? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, especially in elementary schools, I think you bring up an interesting point because really in elementary male educators are are what we would consider almost a unicorn, right? We just don't have many of them at the elementary level. And yet I think we try to put them into boxes that strip them of all the unique things that they are bringing to the table that we want them to bring to the table to connect with kids in different ways because we all connect with kids in different ways but if we strip them of who they are you know we're back where we what we had to begin with yeah uh and that's never good uh i think that you should support teachers for the diversity and culture that they bring to a classroom as long as it's not damaging um, and it's not hurting anyone. Um, I, I believe that that is what makes a school stronger. When you have diverse thoughts and opinions and ways of thinking at in the table, I, I think that's the beauty of it. But some people don't see it that way. No, and that's something we've got to fix and if we if we ever expect this educational system to change and i think we're at a spot where um we have a lot of opportunity for change and adjustment right now just because of the landscape that we're in there's a lot more freedom and and i think we're reshifting our priorities and relooking at things and i think that when new decisions are being made we have got to make sure that there are voices from all different types of people at that table before we start making decisions because they've got to benefit all of our kids, not just a specific subgroup that school was designed for. Yeah, I absolutely agree. You're hitting the nail on the head. So where do we go from here then as far as what can we do to ensure that we are allowing our black educators to feel comfortable in those beginning years. It's it's almost like what's going on now in our society. It's like, I'll give you an example. One of the things is that kills me. I believe when it comes to people addressing racism, they do these superficial things and say, oh yeah, now we, checked off the box we're not racist because we made a statement saying that we love diversity and Mm -hmm. we know we respect diversity one of the things is we're no longer going to call in a housing plan there was something released we're never going we're not going to call it the master bedroom anymore Mm -hmm. um you know we're going to take off that master part and you know black folks are just sitting around here like this is not really what we're looking (laughs) for like if you really want to help Change the name from massive bedroom or not, it's not going to change anything. Like, let's look at the structural inequality of why Black folks can't even get a house uh, to begin with. You mm-hmm. know, those are the type of things that we're looking at. So when we're looking in a school system, it's like, okay, you say that you 
appreciate diversity. Um, you made a statement about diversity. Okay, so let's put these diverse people at the table when these policies are being made. Mm -hmm. Let's think about these diverse people at, for these high positions, these principalships. Let's think about diversity when it comes to those things so that when the decisions and policies are being made, now you can say that you really do appreciate diversity because you are making space at the table. Mm -hmm. um, that, that's really what you know, we're, we're looking for, equitable experiences. Um, not just a statement. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I can speak for me, a big thing as a white female that I have really tried to be mindful of is that when I'm sitting at the table, if everyone at that table looks like me, because I work in a field where, you know, that is the mass population, get up from the table. Or... Mm say, hey, listen, I would love to be at this table because I think it's important, but I'm going to bring a few friends with me. And, and, that, and that's, what, that's what we're looking for because it is, I, I believe racism is prejudice plus power. And it's that power aspect that, you know, black and colored folks are still, you know, marching and, 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 crying out about is this power part, an equitable chance of power. And so for allies, it is using your power to pull up a chair in these spaces that we have to fight to get to. Um, I, as a consultant, I mean, I get hit up all the time about coming to a school and doing diversity training. And I turned down some schools because literally I can tell that they want to do one diversity workshop hmm. and that's it. Mm -hmm. But that's not how diversity works. You see, when you talk about you want to truly change your practices, procedures, and make your school space equitable, you have to tackle it the same way that you do with other benchmarks for like state standardized tests. You have to have quarterly goals. You have to have teams that meet and say, look at the data. Um, and say, how are we moving towards um, our benchmarks by the data and our teams are going to break down? You, it has to be that intensive. And if you're not willing to look at uh, diversity issues in that same type of energy that you do with other things, it's not going to work because racism is a complex system mm. and it's not going to be done by one workshop. No, not at all. One of the things that I have uh, been learning and trying to verbalize as much as possible this summer is that I truly believe that we need to get to a point where we all understand that this SEL work, this social emotional learning that we want to do in schools cannot move forward unless we're simultaneously doing equity work. Mm -hmm. And that our equity work cannot move forward unless we're simultaneously doing SEL because it's uncomfortable and that's not for the kids. And, and I don't know what mountain I got to go find and scream that off of, but that is for the adults that, that we cannot expect our kids to do SEL or equity unless we're willing to be vulnerable 
and and really dig deep into our emotions and our microaggressions and where we have grown up and the stories we've learned and who we are and then understand how that's shaped how we see the world and how we view other human beings. Absolutely. I totally agree. And it is so uncomfortable for for folks to really dig deep and, and reflect and say, what about my behavior is differential with students and other people? And it's so uncomfortable once you so realize uncomfortable. It. And it is. And it's just not with racism. I'll tell you a lesson that I had with my, my missus. I said, for them, I noticed that there was this pattern that they would go out and they would work with young black males at the elementary level. And the way in which they connected with the students was through sports. Um, yep. and, and I said, so what about, I noticed every time that they would go to a school, there would always be about three or four kids that boys that just was not into sports. Um, some like to draw, some like to read, some, you know, just over in the corner, just making stuff. And they would just leave them. Like, okay, if you're not with football, okay, y'all just sit over there and do your own thing. And it even happens at a young age. I said, y'all really need to check your biases because the way in which masculinity mm -hmm. is, is that if for a man, if you are not into sports, then we question your masculinity yeah. and we have these structures for masculinity and even these misogynistic things and ways of thinking that I have to challenge you now. And it was uncomfortable for him. Uh, one of the guys said, I would, I would not let a female student in my classroom wear shorts because the boys get uh, so <laughs> excited. Excuse me. So yeah. now you're meaning to tell me you would let the boy wear shorts, but a girl couldn't wear shorts because it makes the boys uncontrollable. What? And how is it not misogynistic? Mm -hmm. So now we are not um, capable as men to train our young boys of how to be around a young lady that has shorts on. Like, that doesn't make sense. Now we are telling um, a young lady how she has to dress her body but we are not willing to do the same thing for a boy that's not right no you know i think it gets done um, disproportionately to black males all the time that they are interested in sports and that that is going to be the way that boys are connected with is sports and that's just not that's not true that's white girls like sports and and black males don't not i mean it is it's they're everyone's a human being and they like what they yeah. like and they don't we've got to take time to to allow our students to feel comfortable to tell us what they want to learn absolutely you you're right on it see i'm one of the i'm really a part of that rare uh group of black males that hate sports i don't watch any sports i don't like to participate in sports I don't like going to sports games. I will go to a football game just to show my outfit and listen to the band. <laughs> That's about it. Then so um, I recognize, uh, you know, that I've always been into music. I was in music as a, a, you know, young age. And so that was what really sparked my interest. And we really have to, that's why I'm so careful not to, 
be monolithic in the prescriptions that I speak about when it comes to teaching mm -hmm. black boys. Uh, I'm very careful about not doing that because we are humans. Yeah. And, and I think in the, you know, total opposite, I'm a white female who probably watches sports six days a week and <laughs> never found an educator who wanted to talk to me about sports. And that, was my thing and so i think you've got to take your kids and have them tell you what they like and make an effort you know i don't i will never forget that i had a student who was so into cars that that was you know the only thing i could get him to ever literally talk about because he didn't talk he didn't talk to any humans in our school i know nothing about cars i I barely can fill my gas tank, but you better believe that that whole year I learned more about tires and <laughs> lifts on a car than I have ever learned in my life because we were going to make it work in that math classroom. <laughs> and that's, that's what I'm talking about, being willing to go the extra mile. Like, if you're really trying to connect and build that relationship, you find what they're into and watch how the relationship grows once you show that you have a similar interest like them oh my gosh that is a great way to build a relationship well rashad we end episodes with rapid fire questions there's five of them you're just gonna oh. have to answer them they're easy i promise and then you're done for the night <laughs> oh my so here we go what is your before school routine um sleep and a uh, sausage biscuit. <laughs> Where you get your sausage biscuit? McDonald's. I love it. Yeah. What is one word your students that you work with would use to describe you? Tough. Mm. Your favorite school supply is? White out. <laughs> what is your favorite mantra or saying when things get tough? Mm, oh, that's hard. Oh. This too shall pass. Mm. And one thing you wish someone had told you as a beginning teacher. You cannot change the system overnight. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, think, I think we both probably needed to hear that. <laughs> well, it has been so good talking to you and I have learned so much in this short amount of time. So I really truly appreciate your time. I enjoyed the conversation. Rashad and I got so deep into conversation that I totally forgot to ask him what he's working on and how to connect with him. So if you would like to connect with Dr. Rashad Anderson, you can follow him on Twitter at jazzanderson174. He has also authored two books. So you can check out the book we talked about today, What's Up With All the Black Boys in the Principal's Office, or his brand new book, which was just released last month, Do Something About It, A Guide to Building a School-Based Mentoring Program. And those are both available now on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Guys, I hope that this episode was as powerful and impactful for you as it was for me recording it. Uh, the big things I really want you to take away this week is remember that every child is just a human being. Don't put labels on them. Don't make assumptions. Make time and take time to get to know who they are as human beings. Don't make assumptions based off what they look like, where they live, what their parents do, what their family dynamic is. 
really take the time to get to know your students and allow them to shape their classroom and their educational experience. And to my fellow white educators, I really want you to think about what spaces are lacking diversity in your school and where you can take your seat at the table and pull up another seat alongside of it and invite a non-white colleague to share their experiences. Like Dr. Anderson said, it doesn't take a black teacher to teach a black student, but it does take a black teacher to have all voices represented at the table. This episode is being released on September 2nd, 2020. So, we will be having our BTW podcast chat on September 9th at 8 p.m. Eastern to discuss this episode. I hope to see all of you there. And for those of you who are just jumping back into school, I know it is tiring. I know it has been a tough and grueling couple of weeks, but you've got it. Hang in there. I'm wishing you all a great week. Please remember to connect, explore, and grow together. I'll see you next time. Bye, guys.